Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. In this episode, we're talking all things local energy finance. What does it look like today? What are some of the key innovations, drivers and barriers? And what might the future of local energy finance look like? We're going to be chatting with green finance guru Bruce Davis of Abundance Investments, a sustainable investment platform that brings together people who want to invest in exciting and innovative green energy projects. We'll also be talking with Barbara Hammond, who's the chief executive of the Low Carbon Hub in Oxfordshire. They're a leading social enterprise, and they're out to prove that we can meet energy needs locally in a way that's good for both people and the planet. And remember to follow us on social media. Use our hashtag local zero or tweet us at energyrev underscore UK. Send us on any questions or comments or things you'd like us to get to in future episodes. And we'll make sure we try to address as much of that as we can. As always, we've got Fraser Stewart with us to keep us on the straight and narrow. So hi, Fraser. Welcome back. Hi, Fraser. Hi, everyone. How are we all doing? Yeah, managing. This is, as I've said before, our third lockdown now. So I've likened it to a very, very bad trilogy and the worst of, of the trilogy. <laughs> but the end is in sight. It feels like we're, we're on the final peaks of the mountain. Yeah, it's starting You'd to look so. a little bit more optimistic. I, f- I feel like January lockdown just hits differently. It's just every a barrage of grey and wet and cold and yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And you've got this weird kind of juxtaposition that there's not much happening on our kind of day to day personal social lives, but there's just so much happening out there in the world that we're working in. So you know, every day you're logging on, you're hearing about Cumbrian coal mines or sixth carbon budgets, and um, you know, there's new consultation, new white paper. It is just an avalanche of stuff at the moment. It's nonstop. It's nonstop. And what are we going to do today? What are we talking about today? Well, I guess t- today, you know, we're, we're really kind of picking up on some of the discussions we had with Chris Stark uh, a few weeks ago and talking about uh, sixth carbon budget and the net zero transition. And really, we're talking about the money here. You know, when we spoke to Chris, he was very frank that this is going to cost. It's not going to cost as much as it as some may have initially indicated. Uh, and, you know, these numbers are so big, they're, they're kind of rather meaningless to, to your average kind of layperson. Uh, but about 1% of GDP, the actual 
kind of cost, you know, per year, the expenditure when we get up to 2030, uh, that we're going to need to spend, uh, it's about 50 billion pounds. So to put that into perspective, Crossrail um, costs about 18 billion when it's when it's finally there. Uh, at least that's what TfL is suggesting. So it gives you a sense of how much money we need to spend. Well, it gives us a sense of how much money, but also... On the one hand, 50 billion compared to 18 doesn't sound like a lot for, you know, decarbonizing our entire economy compared to putting in one high speed railway line. So it's it's a huge amount and great to have scale, but feels like this is something we really need to be doing and need to be prioritizing. And, you know, we're not talking about hundreds of billions here. So it, it feels like a lot, but something we can focus on. Well, I mean, that's that's 50 billion per annum. Okay, and um, you know, I mean, the Crossrail project again, not not to be confused with HS2, the high-speed line Crossrail, the, the new Lizzie line, as it's called. Uh, you know, that's that was over a number of years, but it just just gives you a sense of just the scale of the money, and we're, we're roughly spending about ten billion pound a year um, at the moment. So we've got to you know, the uplift is is like you know uh, fivefold. So where's that money going to come from? Well. I don't know, Fraser. What's your piggy bank looking like? <laughs> uh, well, you know, look, it's going to cost. It's going to co- cost a lot, and of course, the state's going to be involved. So multinationals. I guess that you know the question is where the money is coming from and who is spending it is rather aligned to what kind of an energy system we we expect to see. So if it's a centralised energy system, and it's largely uh, whether that's privatised or nationalised, you know, this is these are big organisations planning the spending. If we're looking at a more decentralized energy system uh, where local actors that we've covered off in these episodes are much more involved, then maybe the money comes from elsewhere and it's being spent by other much more local organizations. Yeah. And and I think for me, the big question is, what is this money being spent on? So are we talking about just expenditure on new renewable generation infrastructure or actually as we start to see these changes in our energy system and the increase in renewables meaning we need to think more about flexibility and storage and and how we integrate across transport and electric vehicles new forms of heating actually what that money is being spent on to me that that's not clear yet either yeah so so we we did a bit of research at Strathclyde in conjunction with the University of Manchester and Imperial College we were looking at community energy and we did a survey a couple of years back and looked across the, the entire UK and said, uh, try to understand what were they spending the money on. And it turns out that still people were traditionally spending the money in the way that you framed, you know, on-site, small-scale renewables, maybe a wind turbine or some, uh, you know, on-roof solar panels. But actually things are starting to change and these communities are starting to move into new territory, whether that's Demand reduction through energy efficiency measures, battery storage, electric vehicle charging points, they're slowly moving in a different direction. So as the the things that we spend the money on are changing, do the actors involved change as well? Are we looking at different partnerships? Are we looking at, at different relationships to get these things moving? Well, for me, I don't see how you you can do a net zero transition. And in fact, this was echoed by the CCC, and particularly in their local authorities report, you you just can't do it without this sort of on the ground local grassroots connection um so I, you know it's not just me saying it you know this is being echoed by those that are advising the government now but when we look back and and if we think about your report and and what people are spending on is changing i'm sure this came must have come through in your work that 
the policy landscape is going to be influencing that, right? So the feed-in tariff scheme, which was quite a significant incentive when we look back a few years, is, is no longer the same sort of incentive. At, at the same time, the the capital costs of a lot of these technologies are starting to shift as well, and the cost recovery mechanisms are starting to shift. So have you seen that coming through? And Yeah, so there's there's... There's a really weird thing happening at the moment. The costs are coming down, and quite rightly, you know, the subsidies should peel away. If if it's if it's cost effective against other more traditional techs, then you don't necessarily need the government propping it up. But and this is a big but for communities, local authorities, it might even be other public organisations like universities. If they don't have the money in their bank account to deliver these projects, they need to find the money from elsewhere. Now, the things like the feed-in tariff, and for those the uninitiated, you know, these are subsidies that last sort of 20 years plus and can guarantee a certain amount of income per unit or kilowatt hour of electricity generated that's renewable. And that meant that finance was cheaper because there was less risk attached to these these uh, these projects. So actually, it's removal has really dented the hopes of these local organisations because they just can't bring the cash in at a reasonable price. Uh, I say can't. Um, we're going to speak more to Bruce Davis later from Abundance Investments. He'll tell us a bit more about how they're getting around this. Um, I just last point I think was the importance of local organisations. They're typically very highly trusted, and people are happy to engage with them and work with them. Uh, householders uh, specifically, so I think that's really where where they're going to play a key role. And and for me, the the next question or the next logical question, I guess, is as we start to see. A shift in a little bit of this landscape and we see you know we really we've had quite a thriving community energy sector it's been evolving over the years we're seeing increasingly local authorities getting involved and when we look at some of the new projects coming online and I'm particularly thinking about some of the the smart local energy system projects I feel like we're starting to see this shift from perhaps funding through these policy mechanisms. We're now very much um, seeing a lot of innovation funding, so research and innovation proof of concept. But surely the next phase is then to think about how that becomes sustainable in the long term, how that becomes sustainable without these policy uh, policy incentives. De- deployment. You know, I, I think you said this earlier, the key word is deployment. And, and the big question is, where's the money going to come from at the local level? Because we know councils have been hollowed out uh, in terms of uh, the level of funding that they had. Uh, the Institute for Government uh, have done a recent analysis suggesting that in the last 10 years, that the core grant from central government has fallen by 38%. So if you're a council, you know, you're almost losing one in every two pounds that you can spend. And so when it comes to deployment and what you're talking about, where's the money going to come from? Who's going to put stump it up? And, and that's what today's all about. Hello, my name is Bruce Davis. I'm Joint Managing Director of Abundance Investment. Uh, we're a crowdfunding company funding renewable energy projects in the UK. We set up just over 10 years ago with the aim of allowing anybody to invest into renewable energy projects directly. Um, That was something that wasn't possible at the time. And to do that through a platform that was regulated. So um, offering investments that were a lot like mainstream investments, but they've got this very direct local connection for people. Um, Abundance has basically raised just over 100 million through that mechanism. We've evolved somewhat. We we back renewable energy projects, but we also now back the businesses that are involved in 
building all sorts of green infrastructure in the UK, but always with that focus on those projects being uh, place-based or at a local a local level. Um, the minimum investment that my investors can make is is five pounds, and um, they're able to do that through um, just normally or through a, an ISA account or or even in as part of a special type of pension. So at the moment, yeah, we've 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 backed just over forty five different types of projects, ranging from wind and solar at the very most basic through to more innovative stuff in things like tidal, and most recently working with local councils who themselves are issue, uh, interested in issuing green investments to their local residents. So who are you finding investing in these sorts of projects? Is it people just within the community um, in which that project's based or are you seeing investment from people across the country? Across the country in the main. So our platform reaches everybody in the UK and we find that people are interested both in backing the technologies as well as backing things local to them. The place-based nature of this is that it is a real project, that you're not just looking at an index of a stock market or the share price of a company on a on a screen. These are projects with, with real assets on the other side of it um, that you can go and visit and go and see if you want to. So I think that's more what brings the investors together. And then, yes, there are some where there's a strong local connection for people, and that can sometimes be a reason for investing. And we're hoping that that, that increases over time. Usually, these sorts of transitions are about centralization. You know, the national grid, the creation of the electricity grid, and so on. You know, it took all those assets and put them into into one system. What we're looking at now with the, the green transition is this is a change that's happening in pretty much every bit of the economy. And so it's important that we're not just focusing on sort of big flagship projects. We're actually looking at each individual town and, and village and city. How is it going to you know, basically transition to a net zero economy. You've outlined the the need for investment. I can only assume that Abundance are stepping in to fill a gap because there isn't the money there already to fill that need for investment. I think there's, yeah, there's two elements to that. I think there's a lot of money looking to invest. The false assumption you can make about that is that all money is the same. The reality is that it's all money tied up in particular types of assets or particular types of investment vehicle, and they can only do certain sorts of things. They're very mechanical. Um, They're not flexible. Um, Pension funds can only invest in certain types of assets. Uh, Investment funds can only invest in certain types of assets. And so when we're looking at the transition, what Abundance saw was there's a whole group of investments which could really only be made through up until that point what would be called private investment vehicles. And those generally were quite exclusive. You can almost think of them a bit like golf clubs. You had to know someone to be in them and you ideally, you know, dressed in a blazer and and were in your sort of mid-50s. We tried to break the hold that those guys had over the market. I think the thing that then differentiates us is we're able to to do investments that are of a range between one and and, and eight million pounds. So, um, and that, that is a particular gap if you talk to a banker, it's only interesting if it's below a million because you don't need to do very much due diligence or above 20 million because it costs a lot to put on expensive designer willies and go to a field. There's a niche. There's a niche in yeah, the market definitely. then. Yeah. And I'm wondering, with with the people that are investing, with your investors, are they seeing the sorts of return on investment that they might get from putting their money elsewhere? Or are they investing in this because they're getting something else out of it beyond that direct financial return? It's, they sort of refer to it often as sort of a win-win. Um, sounds like a marketing speak, but actually it's what my customers say. 
Um, so they're looking for a financial return. That financial return depends on their financial needs. So we offer a range of different returns. It goes up from anything at our lowest risk investment is at about 1.2% up to 12 or 15% return. So you've got quite a range there. What's interesting is, yeah, there's the assumption that you kind of do green investment to get something out of it that's not just financial. My view on that is all investments have either a cost or a benefit to society. You don't get to choose whether that happens. It happens. We're sort of tapping into a broader need that people have to feel their money is not just sitting there essentially at the mercy of the ups and downs of a stock market, but is actually making a difference. So one of the big drivers of green investment is actually what sort of planet am I leaving behind for future generations and how and a sort of realize and a realization that your money has an impact on the world beyond simply your own financial well-being. So You've talked a little bit about what abundance is, what you've been doing, the sorts of scales of investment that you're looking at. Earlier in the pod, we were chatting about what needs to happen now to deliver net zero. And Matt was reminding us that we need about 50 billion pounds a year Hmm. in capital investments for net zero projects. So what sort of a role do you see abundance playing in that future? Um, Well, obviously, yes, we would love to be doing that kind of volume no uh, <laughs> I think well I mean what's the market for local investment I think you know what we see is that you know we look across the different sectors that we're now looking at so you've got uh, transport food production this is sort of beyond energy and local councils you are talking about billions of pounds worth of investment being needed the amount that can be delivered through individuals well in a way it will be individuals money ultimately that does invest in this, it's just whether or not they're making the decision for themselves. Part of the problem with that 50 billion is is a sort of assumption that that somehow we've consented to that. And we haven't, you know, we don't know what that 50 billion is going to be spent on. We don't know who's going to benefit. Making that transparent and clear to people will be a really important part of people accepting what is going to be both a positive and negative transition for communities. And do your shareholders then um hold you accountable to higher standards? Do you think that by leveraging mechanisms um, and and organisations such as yourself, we'll start to have really strong kind of accountability structures when we're looking at those investments? Um, Well, there's two types of of investor in abundance. There's those that have invested in our platform, so our business, and then there are the people that have invested into the projects. The people who invest in the projects, they invest uh, via a debt instrument rather than shares. So they buy a bond. Uh, or a debenture, we call them debentures, um, and that means that you are you know you're lending money to that company, and the company owes you that money. So there's already a relationship there. Twice a year, that company has to pay you some form of interest or repayment of capital, and again, we we require those companies to give updates at that point. And if something goes wrong, um, you have certain rights. We've had a couple of companies who've had to either change the terms of investment or or, or manage a difficulty, uh, particularly working with the regulator, uh, Ofgem. And our debenture holders have had a say in how that works. I think the next level of accountability, you're right, is to then look at the impact of those projects and, and do they do what they said on the tin. Um, for some, that's very straightforward because you're generating green energy and they should do that successfully or not. But for others, where, for example, we've been working with more sort of controversial areas like energy from waste. It's about those companies sort of being held to account that they do what they said in terms of environmental protections. So yes, it's it does involve, they are conscious that they have retail investors. 
So, Bruce, I wanted just to, to turn to local councils. Uh, before we talk a bit about the, the projects, the particular councils that you've been involved with and how you've gone about raising finance, I wanted to ask the question about why councils have been reaching out to you and why they are maybe not in a situation to to fund this themselves. Okay, so um, we've been working to help councils issue a, a bond that they used to do on a regular basis called a municipal bond. So that's a, a an investment that's backed by a council rather than being backed by a company, which makes it lower risk. So um, councils is changing very slightly the situation, but up until last year, it was very clear where they could get money from, which is central government. So councils were borrowing between three and seven billion a year through what's called the Public Works Loan Board. And that is part of the government's debt management office. They also issue all the the bonds to the general markets, gilt, gilt investments as well. So yes, local authorities could borrow to invest into these types of projects, but what they were concerned about was that they local residents were had pretty low awareness actually of what councils were doing and pretty low engagement. So what they wanted was to raise the money pretty much on the same terms as they could get from government, but also that they then felt that their residents were were part of that solution. Excellent. Bruce, there's probably two more questions we'd, we'd just like to cover off, if that's okay. So the, the first is whether you see there being a big difference in the way that local authorities may go about raising finance versus communities. Because I know you've been very involved with communities and crowdsourcing, crowd um, funding in the past. So, uh, you know, can they learn from each other or, or are they going to have to go two separate ways on this one? Um, well, we're hoping that we create more of an ecosystem. I think there has been some sensitivities that, you know, councils getting involved in this, does that mean that communities are sort of uh, crowded out? My experience is that councils are looking at projects that are quite different to the community projects. You know, the council's looking at, you know, essentially larger scale infrastructure improvements that need to be made, a lot of which they are responsible for. Um, and so it's really about encouraging the councils to get on with the tasks that they have of uh, the transition. At the same time, we would see that as encouraging communities to look at themselves and, and and come up with ways that they can contribute. So for most councils, this was about getting communities more aware of both the need and the opportunity of local investment, rather than saying, no, the only way we're going to do it now is, is, is through the council, because obviously those community investments offer a very different sort of risk and return. So we see this as, if you like, a gateway to... Uh, more communities actually seeing that this is something they could be doing for themselves as well as through the council. Do, do you think they're going to be working much together uh, in partnership? Yeah, so we're involved as one of the tender consortia for the Bristol City Leap project. That whole tender has uh, the involvement of the community energy sector written into it. And I think working with the other councils, they were really keen that they then use this as a springboard for those community energy groups to actually come up with ideas and come forward. Actually, they'd found that there'd been a bit of a lack of dialogue, possibly a little bit of distrust of each other's motives. I don't know, but um, that wasn't really you know, a, a productive kind of conversation. Hopefully doing this, we can kind of show that. Um, and I think also the council co-investing with those groups is also possible through these structures. So you're providing another source of capital for those community energy groups. Maybe they raise the equity and the uh, council provides the debt, for example. So I think it's it's being a little bit more flexible about how these projects work is, is needed. So they, they could potentially complement each other. Yeah. 
that's fascinating, Rich. Thank you so much for your time. That's okay. um, and we, we maybe hope to have you back uh, further down the line. But until then, stay safe, take care. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you again in the flesh soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Local Zero with Matt Hannon, Rebecca Ford and Fraser Stewart. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at energyrev underscore UK. Use the hashtag Local Zero if you want to ask us any questions and we'll try and address them in future episodes. So we've just been chatting with Bruce Davis from Abundance Investments. And wow, he covered a huge amount of ground, didn't he, Matt? And I guess for me that the first thing that was really interesting that he talked about was that they're providing this this gap in the market. So people that want to invest in these sorts of projects, but don't have, you know, the huge amounts of money to to invest. So I, I thought it was great, like invest with as little as five pounds. Brilliant. Let, really opens the door for more people to get involved. Absolutely. And it's also about people's appetites. You know, I think they're, they're linking or hooking into a wider trend where people are not only looking to invest in something greener, but they're also looking to invest in something that is more meaningful. And as he said, and I thought this was a wonderful thing that he said there, you're not just investing in a, you know, stocks or shares. You're not investing on the basis of a graph. You're investing on the basis of trying to change your local neighbourhood. Um, Fraser, what was your take? I, I couldn't agree with that more. I, th- I think it was really, really fascinating and it's exciting as well. So from a sort of selfish personal perspective, I've been working with uh, Glasgow Community Energy recently. And something that Bruce touched on at the end there was that councils and community groups, there's scope now for them to to complement each other. In my experience, we can often look at the council as a, a hurdle to overcome, to try and get a project off the ground, to get through the red tape and the bureaucracy. So it's really, really exciting, I think, to hear that, that Bruce sees a way forward where councils and community groups work more closely and more uh, collaboratively going forward. So I want to pick up on this issue of local because this was one thing that I was quite interested in. Generally, when we talk about councils and community groups, we're very much thinking about a specific place, a project in a specific place backed by local organisations. But right at the beginning, Bruce said that, that some of their investors, they're not explicitly local. You know, They're not just investing in something that's right there in their neighbourhood. They could be from all around the country. So I think that this is quite an interesting issue of, of how these different elements fit together to support... I guess, investment in that community. You're, you're poking a hornet's nest here, Becky, because, <laughs> you know, what what is local, what is community? But what I'll say is from the, the research that we've been undertaking, we know that people invest in localities that are way, way, you know, beyond where they're physically located. Now, sometimes there's quite a clear link. Maybe they used to live there or they've got family there or maybe they go on holiday there or something like that. For other reasons, there, there is a much less obvious link between the two. And they maybe just like the concept of investing in local um, community projects that have a real-world impact that they can they can kind of Google in two, three years' time and read the newsletter about. And they actually, it's something that they can point yeah, to. Yeah, you see it with uh, cooperatives as well, especially with community energy, as I'm sure you've read as well, Matt. It tends to be the same, maybe a few hundred or a few thousand members within the same cooperatives that invest in a lot of the same projects. They're scattered all across the country, but take things like Edinburgh Solar and those kinds of projects are are invested in from from all over. It feels much more uh, purpose-driven rather than purely local-driven. A belief in the idea of local rather than being local. We're going to move on now and talk to somebody who's not only financing, but also implementing local energy projects in Oxfordshire. I'm Barbara Hammond. I'm 
chief executive of the Low Carbon Hub in Oxfordshire, uh, which is a group of social enterprises that all work together with the aim of helping the whole of Oxfordshire to make the transition to zero carbon energy system, but working through people and communities rather than thinking that it's all about top-down technology. Brilliant. And and I hear congratulations is in order or perhaps happy birthday because the Low Carbon Hub is 10 years old this year. It will be 10 years old on the 4th of December. How exciting. It is really exciting. And it's also something that makes you really proud because I'm sure all of you guys know that uh, most startup businesses die before they're five. And we've made it to 10. And we're just about to uh, reach financial close on a project that has a 40-year lifestyle time. Wow. So I'm starting to see beyond my own lifetime <laughs> with the low carbon hub. And that's just amazing because it, it means that we really should be there for the for the whole duration of making the transition to zero carbon. And a lot has happened in the last 10 years, actually, when we think about renewables and the state of the sector. So maybe you could just give us a little bit of the history of the Low Carbon Hub, sort of looking back over the last 10 years. What prompted you to even start it? And and how far have you come in that time? So I never started thinking that I was going to set up a social enterprise. In 2007, in West Oxford, that's the western side of the city, we had a gargantuan summer flood that meant that we were flooded for 10 days in the middle of July. Uh, We were in wellies for that time. Uh, You couldn't drive a car along the Botley Road, which gets you into Oxford. And it really prompted the community to think about whether that was um, a little signal of climate change starting to happen. And for a community that exists on the floodplain of the River Thames, that's quite a scary uh, thought. I've been thinking with my husband, David, who's uh, an architect and passionate about um, zero carbon buildings, for quite a long time about how we would um, disseminate the knowledge that we got from doing our own house. And we just had this epiphany on the tow path of the River Thames one morning outside our house, looking at the um, the crinkly tin above the old power station that was the university engineering lab, going, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could cover that in PVs and use the income from that to support people to work with the community to understand what we've done on our house and repeat what we've done on our, our house. Because how, how else are we going to work with 26 million households to make these changes that we've got to make? Um, so that idea got taken up by um, Low Carbon West Oxford that was set up by um, a group of women uh, around their kitchen tables, um, all of whom knew each other from meeting at the school gates. I was still working as senior civil servant in the um, Uh, Department for Trade and Industry at the time, running the UK Renewable Energy Programme. So just that bringing together of national level policy and and real grassroots stuff was fascinating. So we set up Locum West Oxford as a charity. We set up West Oxford Community Renewables with the first ever third party leased solar PV roof in the whole of the UK. We set up Lock Hydro to um, build the first community owned hydro on the Thames. And then we started thinking, well, how do we deal with all of these inquiries from communities all over the place about how they can repeat what we've done? And at that precise moment, Oxford City Council rang up and said, 
we think you're doing a really fantastic job in West Oxford. We'd love to work with you on how you repeat it in other communities in the city. We've got this possibility of grant funding, but we don't know what to do with it. Do you have any ideas? And we went, oh, we may have one or two. We had a week to put a bid together for £300,000, uh, part of which went into the business planning for the Low Carbon Hub. Uh, so it's just been a whole history of community activity, but a local authority and a city council who really notices that, mm -hmm. but doesn't take it over, they support it to help it grow. Sounds like some really lovely collaborations there uh, to, to get you off the ground. But talk to me a little bit more about some of the, the finance that's helped underpin a lot of this. So you mentioned about a third party finance, or one of the first in the UK, and also the grant funding. How important have these different sorts of streams been to you setting up some of the projects that you've been running? Oh, uh, hugely important. I mean, when we started um, in West Oxford and then into the hub, you know, we were learning about social enterprise business models as we went. Not many people knew how to work them at the time. As we were learning about what it is to be a social enterprise, we were also learning about the different forms of finance. And I think the key thing about social enterprises if, if you do it properly through the legal forms like a community benefit society or a co-op or a community interest company, um, you, you don't do what businesses normally do to get early stage investments in. You don't give away part of the ownership. You don't expect to sell it on after a while to make your money back because the profit in social enterprises is all actually owned by the community if you're our sort of social enterprise. You don't get a big chunk of investment in to help you develop a good idea. You get investment in that you can secure against assets or against income flow. And that just makes it a whole different ball game in terms of starting up uh, social enterprise. And so we didn't rely on private equity at the beginning, as most startup businesses do. Um, we relied on grant funding. And I, I need to be really clear about that because that's, for us, that's the equivalent of angel investment, venture capital investment. And there's no shame in it. It took me quite a long time to realise there's no shame in, in, in having done that. So we, we started up with, with grant funding. We also worked out how to raise equity into a social enterprise. And the big thing about equity in our sort of social enterprise is that um, the equity investment is treated as if it were a long-term loan. The profit is all owned by the community. It's all there for to, to, to make the community benefit happen. So, you know, you, ha you have to be very clear with members of the public investing in, in you that we're not regulated by the, the financial regulations 2005. There's no ombudsman backing us. There's no £80,000 secure. They should only invest in us what they can afford to lose. And so that limits um, how much we can raise in that way, really. And we're also limited by law to £100,000 per person. So that means that it's really important for us to be working with other sorts of partnerships to be able to add to that particular sort of equity with long-term finance or with construction finance. So I often characterise funding into the community energy space in kind of three waves. The first, maybe pre-2010 
2009 typically grants and i think you mentioned that and we start to see grants government grants fall away as they as government started to introduce long-term revenue payments so this kind of second wave where you had the feed-in tariff renewable heat incentive and now we're kind of in this third wave where we started to see those fall away and there are inklings now with things like the green home grants that we're kind of going back to phase one that it's going to be grants again so i just wanted you to character your view characterize where we are and what kind of money are you able to draw down at the moment most easily? Yeah, so we had a long thorny history in this country with those um, income subsidies with a treasury that didn't like them at all and as a consequence put them on the nation's balance sheet which made it look terrible in terms of national borrowing and therefore wanted to get rid of them as soon as possible. The feed-in tariff we all know that, um, finished about two years too early. It was brilliantly designed to reduce as uh, cost curves reduced, but government just pulled it down for political reasons with a small p, maybe a large one, um, too early. And at the same time, Ofgem piled in with their targeted charging review, which meant that the embedded benefits that projects had enjoyed are, are really gone and you can't rely on those um, any longer to make a, um, a project stack. And that means that it's really difficult to make any project stack at the moment. The ones that are happening with no subsidy at all are really easy vanilla things like solar ground mount that are really big and are modelled over 40 years. And one of the, the other characteristics of projects that I've heard is that have become kind of really desirable in this move away from subsidies are projects that encourage self-consumption. And this is why battery generation alongside solar has become, is becoming a lot more popular for communities and, and, and the like. It's really complicated. Scale is one thing, as we've just talked about. The other thing that's really important in those pro- those projects with large scale is that they have really solid long-term power purchase agreements fun- and funding contracts um, with them as well. That makes them so. So for for our listeners, it's probably worth just unpacking what a you know a power purchase agreement is PPA. It's a long-term contract whereby they buy the power that you generate, and that's the big change. That whereas you had sort of three bits of your stack, the feed-in tariff, the embedded generation and the PPA, now you've got the PPA. And so you're really reliant on it. You need to make it rock solid in order to make your investments bankable. And that means that the contracts are being set up for a very long time with very little flex in them. When we've looked at at our portfolio of 43 um, solar rooftops in terms of making them flexible and dispatchable by adding a battery. The costs of the battery are still prohibitive. It's really hard to stack up something that makes sense unless you've got access to a lot of money of your own. So I think private equity is funding quite a lot of this early stage stuff. I've heard heard one of my, my colleagues in the past refer to these batteries as, you know, depending on the, the size, of course, a £10,000 wallet that you can stash a few hundred quid in. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just paraphrase it, but I think hopefully yeah. that captures your point a bit. Yeah. I think one of the things that we really realised 
coming into Local Energy Oxfordshire and the Innovate UK funding. Firstly, Innovate UK doesn't know what to do with social enterprises. We had a really hard time with them at getting even getting the contract signed because they weren't used to the way that we work. But also because it's set up to assume that their funding widgets that are at a particular technology readiness level, they find it quite hard to fund things that are about the system where some of the time we're working post-commercial really in putting solar ground mount in. Other times we're working pre-commercial because we're making that solar ground mount smart. Other times we're, we're right back at proof of concept on how what the data and comms widgets are that you need and how you put that, that whole system together so that everything can talk to each other and respond to signals in time so that the grid doesn't fall over. So it, it's really hard to, um, we're, we're having to make our 45% grant funding spread across everything from projects that need 45% because of what we've talked about with the feed-in tariff and targeted charging review, right across the project, to projects that need 100% because they're at an earlier TRL. We're doing it, we're getting there, we're sorting it out, but it's really complicated. So, so Barbara, for communities, can communities rely on these going forward to, to generate the income they, they need to do and deliver the kind of community benefit they want? I would say not for quite a while. We, we don't yet know what the value to the system is, so we don't know how much we're going to earn. You may sign up to a contract for you know, years, maybe, but your, the, the service you've won the auction for is only needed for one half hour on a January anticyclone day, <laughs> um, or not at all, or you've invested in this kit, you go into the auction and you don't win it. So you cannot rely yet, and probably for a w quite a while, on predictable, consistent revenue from flexibility services. So if, if that is the case, and I'm, I'm looking forward, and I know from the research we've done, I know communities are in a position now post-fit that they're still, many are still scratching their heads around what to do next and where to draw down funds. So, you know, if you had a plea to government, what, what do communities need to put in place the finance and the funding to, to ensure that these projects happen? Certainty is the thing that we need. You know, we need to test these markets and, and work out how, how things actually work. I think there does need to be um, a relook at the way that costs of the network are socialised. I don't think that the current uh, way of doing it is, is, is fair, actually. It was meant to be fair, but I don't think it is fair. And I think we need incentives in terms of a really stable policy framework that is requiring these things to happen, along with innovation funding that is tailored for communities and social enterprise in the way that communities tend to operate, which it certainly isn't at the moment. Access to investment scheme reliefs. We probably need some specific programmes for community stroke grid edge demonstrator projects where the funding is targeted at communities, not at local authorities. And I think that we need to put, I think we need to put energy policy together with other 
um, forms of policy. So one of the things that, that I think communities would be really, really good at is community-led housing. Uh, community-led housing with microgrids. So really high-quality fabric, uh, microgrids, community energy service companies selling the services to the households. I think community energy is really well set up for that because the housing in itself um, gives the bottom to the project that you need in terms of the certainty. So it sounds like a very, very complicated environment at the moment. And, you know, at the beginning, you talked about how innovation funding is is kind of, a, and grant, this grant funding is really a key a key aspect of getting everything off the ground. But you just said it's not working that well. So I'm just wondering, like, what is it about it that's not working well? And, and what are some of the biggest challenges? Or what do you need to be doing, um, for example, in Project Leo to start to change that? How do you see that moving forward? And what might the next five to 10 years bring for you? Yeah, um, there are some very good uh, funding programs that do help communities to, to, to start projects up. Uh, the Royal Community Energy Fund is an example of that. The Next Generation Fund run by Power to Change is another uh, example of that. But they're fairly small pots of money that will run out. What I would really like is we really um, ramp up on the um, innovation funding going through Innovate UK, which I think is what the government's um, strategy is. I would like to see a bit of Innovate UK, which is really geared up to help social enterprise of all sorts, not, not just energy, um, so that when you go into an Innovate UK pro project, they don't, as part of the financial due diligence on you, require you to produce the letter from your investor saying that they are just about to put a huge pot of money into your bank account, which is the way they do it at the moment. No social enterprise can do that. Uh, we fund ourselves in different ways. We raise equity when we need it. Um, and we managed to convince Innovate UK to work with us in that way because we were part of one of the four smart energy demonstrators in the PIFA programme. If we hadn't been, we wouldn't have got through that process. I'm absolutely sure. So communities need to be seen as not just fluffy pink stuff on the side that you pay lip service to because you need to sound as if you're woke. Communities is where real innovation for really good reasons happens and that needs to be supported we've seen with the with the covid situation with the vaccines programs how proud people are when they can take part in an innovation program like that by risking their health offering themselves up for, for jabs. We know that communities are, feel exactly the same way about energy what's the local public health type really on the ground system that we put in the, in place in the UK to enable all of that to happen. So that's the key challenge, isn't it, for the for the next year or so? Is like really bringing community into the heart of all of these programs. Well, I, I do think that behavioural science thing is is an important one. I, I sort of feel that the behavioural science that we bring to bear on on energy problems isn't as sophisticated as that we bring to bear on medical problems. Barbara, we're we're entering you know a new phase, and I just wanted to. Um, I guess wrap up with you know the discussions about how net zero transition is stepping forward, and what your hopes and dreams are for um, for Oxford and, and beyond. You know what what are you looking at doing in the next few years, and why? One main thing: every time we write a business plan, uh, we need to rewrite it after a year. <laughs> we re we yeah, wrote that's, our that's, that's business plans for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we wrote our business plan a year ago, and we already need to change it. Um, 
So I think the big thing that we found from Project Leo, which I think is going to be really important for community energy and for us, is how you bring together energy efficiency and energy generation so that you don't have a split between the two and different programs for those and different business models for those. What you're actually doing is working with a household or a business or a community about their whole energy metabolism. So what are the business models? What are the products that you can offer, offer to people that really take their whole lifestyle and make it zero carbon and also much healthier? So we've got programs for domestic retrofitting called Cozy Homes for SME retrofitting called Energy Solutions Oxfordshire. And then we've got Project Leo and the trading and uh, energy trading and flexibility trading. We need to bring all of those programs together into one set of products. And we need to know what the customer journeys are for the household, the business or the community that allows them to come in from any direction that so is, it, is good So is it a one-stop shop? kind of concept. Yeah, it's a one-stop shop which allows people who want to take control to take control, but allows people who don't to be working with like the community energy services company model. Many thanks Barbara, that was absolutely fascinating and all the best to you and the low carbon hub team. Um, we look forward to seeing how things progress in Oxford. And I hope you might be able to stick around for our next venture which is future or fiction. So uh, if you are happy to it's over to Fraser. Yeah, so Barbara, I'll explain to you how it works. It's very, very simple. I will present to you some kind of technological innovation and you have to decide if you think it's the future of technology or if you think that I've just made it up, that I've just pulled out my backside. And, and we, sh we should say, Fraser, that we're all going to... We're all going to do it as well. Okay, yeah, so don't, not don't worry. Just you, yes. <laughs> we're not just We're not going to spotlight you. Uh, we'll, we'll all get it wrong with you uh, or, or, or right or whatever. This one this one as well, um, for, for Matt's benefit, I've made it not too technical this time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sorry, Matt. Sorry. No, it's, okay, it's absolutely so, fair. <laughs> this technology is called RoboCrop. RoboCrop. Oh, man, this is yours. This has got your fingerprints all over it. <laughs> You've been, I can see you've been lying awake at night covered up with this one. <laughs> it's going to throw you off. I promise you it's going to throw you off. Maybe. Okay, so Robocrop. An organic farmer in the United States has designed a solar-powered scarecrow that moves and makes noise throughout the day to keep birds and pests away from its crops. It's powered by a small PV module on the scarecrow's arm. According to the farmer, the moving scarecrow is more effective at keeping birds and pests away, and he plans to manufacture and sell them to other farmers around the world. Do we think <laughs> it's the future? <laughs> this is a good one. So hang on a minute. I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I haven't spent much time on a farm. My extent on a farm really is looking at some of the the TV shows that my kids watch, right? But Aunt Scarecrow kind of sticks in the ground. Yes. Well, the old the for, the old generation of Scarecrow was yeah was uh, <laughs> pretty sedentary. Uh, yeah, it's Big yeah it's ground. it's like a, a broom that sticks out of the ground that you dress up with a hat and stuff. The idea is that you wanted something that looked like a person in the field to scare away. Uh, Crows, specifically. So is this something like a solar-powered Terminator? Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> not, it, it would be a, a great start to a dystopian movie. But it's not, it's not, it doesn't look like the Terminator. It looks like a, if you could imagine like a, 
like a mechanical, you know, like a mechanical toy dog or something like that that moves and makes noise. Well, well, Barbara, have we seen any of these in the fields of Oxfordshire yet? Uh, we haven't. Um, I sort of reckon you wouldn't because I can't see how they would offer you more than for about 10 times, 20, 40 times the price of of sticking your broom in the ground with old clothes <laughs> flapping from it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these classically over-engineered <laughs> solutions, I think, Fraser, which, I mean, yeah. I, the name is definitely yours. I'm convinced of it. But but the idea, I can <laughs> see somebody's made The, na- the names somewhere. are always yeah. made. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm torn. Where did you say this was from? As a farmer in the United States. Where in the United States? Silicon Valley. <laughs> oh, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. I he don't. He said have it was an organic farmer in the United an organic, States. So probably like Portland or something. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing more kind of low, low carbon organic than a stick in the ground, is there? I mean, it's, you know, you're not. <laughs> I'd like to see the cost benefit analysis. <laughs> yes, it looks. It looks I, it's not look good. It, it doesn't. It doesn't start. My understanding. It doesn't start as like a big here's a business pitch. It's a guy's made one and gone, this works, I'm going to sell it. Right, so score, scores on the doors. What do we think? <laughs> oh, Barbara, future or fiction? Yeah, what do we think? Oh, fiction. Fiction, okay. Becky? So I, I'm sure I'm sure somebody's made one of these somewhere. I don't think anybody's commercialising these. I'm going future because I genuinely think somebody's made one of these somewhere. This, this may not be called Robocrop, but somebody out there's done this, for sure. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's definitely not called Robocrop. It, or it's it's not. It's not. That's what keeps me awake at night. It's the names. It's not the not the ideas. I'm going with fiction. Go on. I want to know. Mm. Well, Fraser's the man who knows. I what, am. what what's the answer? So we've is that locked in? We've got two two fictions and Matt's going future? Yep. Yep. The answer is fiction. I completely pulled that out of my backside about half an hour before we started recording the show today. <laughs> I, I knew it was your name. <laughs> just so, so happy with yourself with Robocrop. Yeah. Okay. Well, well done. I was th- before the show. I was thinking, what can I make a fridge interesting? Can I make a yeah. coffee machine? And I machine? bet you started with Terminator, didn't you? And tried to figure <laughs> out how that could sound agricultural. The Germinator. <laughs> it's not quite as obvious, is it? Oh, fabulous. <laughs> Well, that was another absolutely brilliant future or fiction. Thanks, Fraser, for that. And I have to say, I'm absolutely stoked because I finally got one right, which <laughs> which makes me very happy. <laughs> so it's been it's been a great show. Um, thanks to Bruce and thanks to Barbara and thanks to you all for listening. And uh, remember to to share this with your friends. Tell everyone about the podcast. Tweet us at energyrev underscore uk. Use the hashtag local zero. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye for now. Yeah, see you again soon. Bye, 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 bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.